Good morning, everyone. Repent. How do you feel when you hear that word? How do you feel seeing that word up on the screen? I know from talking to some of you that when you hear the word repent, you honestly feel some annoyance. I know that some of you, when you hear the word repent, feel some exhaustion. Uh, When you see it as the the big word of the morning, you feel some fear. By the time we take the Lord's table together today, I want you to look at repent and feel hope. Um, I want you to think about repent and feel the love of God coming toward you. Um, I want you to look at repent and, and remember joy for what it has done in your life. So I know that's a lot of ground to cover from where you are to that. So let's get started. Uh, We're in Ezra chapter nine this morning. Ezra, not just my favorite character from Star Wars. Also, um, a a priest and a scribe from the Old Testament. Um, Ezra was not, he was Jewish, but he was not born in Israel. Ezra was born in Persia, But all he ever did was study the law of Moses. And all he ever wanted to do was go home to Israel and see the temple rebuilt and see the true worship of God as described in the law of Moses flourish. And that's what he prayed for. And uh, as we've been studying through a series of miracles, God made it possible for Ezra to go home to Israel and and teach and reinvigorate and reignite um, the laws of God in what we call the Old Testament. And so by the time we're in Ezra chapter nine, he's been there for four and a half months and he's been teaching people this law of Moses and things seem to be going pretty good until this happens. Beginning in verse one. When these things had been done, the Jewish leaders came to me and said, many of the people of Israel and even some of the priests and Levites have not kept themselves separate from the other peoples living in this land. They have taken up the detestable practices of the Canaanites, Hittites, Perizzites, Jebusites, Ammonites, Moabites, Egyptians, and Amorites. For the men of Israel have married women from these people and have taken them as wives for their sons. So the holy race has become polluted by these mixed marriages. Worse yet, the leaders and officials have led the way in this outrage. When I heard this, I tore my cloak and my shirt, pulled the hair from my head and beard, and sat down utterly shocked. Then all who tremble at the words of the God of Israel came and sat with me because of this outrage committed by the returned exiles. And I sat there, utterly appalled until the time of the evening sacrifice." So Ezra's dream has come true. The temple's rebuilt. They're restarting the faith according to the law of Moses. And somebody comes up and says, a bunch of Jews, including priests and and Levites and even our own leaders are marrying the the local people who, who live here. And when Ezra hears that, he tears his cloak. And when that's not enough, he tears his shirt. Now clothes were really expensive back then and very difficult to make. And if somebody was tearing their own clothing, everybody went, whoa, 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 what's he so mad about? When that's not enough, he starts going, no, no, no. And he's grabbing fistfuls of his hair and ripping it out. And when that's not enough, he grabs a face beard and pulls it out and there's blood on his cheeks. And then in the exhaustion of this temper tantrum, he just sits down in the dust utterly shocked. What is the big deal? 
some Jews married some people that weren't Jews? I mean, are they that racist? Are they that upset about mixed marriages and interracial marriages that we tear the hair off of our face? That's not what it's about. That's not what it's about. Moses was Ezra's biggest hero of the Old Testament and Moses was married to a non-Hebrew. Joseph is the squeakiest clean character in the Old Testament morally and he's married to a non-Hebrew. Uh, Ruth, the mother, uh, grandmother of King David was married to two non-Hebrews and the whole book of Ruth is about how another Hebrew marries a non-Hebrew and it's a beautiful story of, of really a picture of Christ's redemption to come. So, so that's not really what it's about. So what is it about? Uh, there's some baggage here. And to understand it, we need to talk about the land of Canaan. So the land of Canaan is what they called it before they called it Israel when it was, you know, before the promised land. And, uh, and it's all these tribes that were living there already, the Perizzites and the Girgashites and the Hittites and, and those folks that he was going on about. And, and they did some wicked stuff in that land. So they'd made up gods for themselves with exotic names like Molech and Baal and they made idols out of wood and stone and gold and they bowed down. Now, even though they got to you know, make up their own gods, they made them really mean gods for some reason. Um, these gods did not listen to you and offer you guidance when you prayed to them. They wouldn't do that. If you wanted guidance, you had to raise the spirits of your dead relatives and ask them. They hoped these gods might make their crops grow or, or bring them children and things. But if that wasn't happening, you could actually pay an offering and go to a temple where there would be a female prostitute who pretended to be a goddess of fertility. And if you had sex with her, then maybe your crops would grow. Or you could send your wife with an offering to the temple where there was a male prostitute pretending to be a god of fertility. And if she had intercourse with him, then, then maybe she could have a baby. I, I wonder whose baby she was even having. And if all that wasn't enough, you could take your infant child and put them into the mouth of a statue of Molech and light a fire under the statue and watch in agony as your baby burns to death. But then maybe the god Molech will be pleased and send you some rain. And God hated this picture. And he gave the people of Canaan four generations to turn around and turn away from all of this. And then he extended it and gave them another full thousand years. But after a thousand years, nothing changed. And so God said, new plan. I am moving those seven tribes out of there and I am putting in a new tribe of my own creation, the tribe of Israel. And they're gonna teach me, the one true God who made everything. And I do guide you when you pray to me. You do not have to ask the spirit of your dead relatives. And I send children and I send rain and I send crops and you don't make child sacrifices to me. In fact, in fact, I will make a sacrifice for you. That's who God is. And that's the picture I want to go forth in the world and I'm done with these statues and fertility rites. And so to get that off the ground, he sends Moses. So let's turn 800 years before Ezra where Moses says, when the Lord your God brings you into the land you are about to enter and occupy, he will clear away many nations ahead of you. The Hittites, Girgashites, Amorites, Canaanites, Perizzites, Hivites, and Jebusites. These seven nations are greater and more numerous than you. When the Lord your God hands these nations over to you and you conquer them, you must completely destroy them. 
Make no treaties with them. Show them no mercy. You must not intermarry with them. Do not let your daughters and sons marry their sons and daughters, for they will lead your children away from me to worship other gods. Then the anger of the Lord will burn against you, and he will quickly destroy you. This is what you must do. You must break down their pagan altars and shatter their sacred pillars, cut down their Asherah poles, and burn their idols. Now, I know what some of you are thinking right now. You're thinking, well, that sounds mean. You know, that's not, that's not necessary. There must be a better way. And, and you know what? That's what the people of Israel thought too. Uh, they wiped out the first couple of cities they came to and then they started thinking, I'm not sure this is necessary. Why don't we just make a treaty and they can live on this side and we'll live on that side. And why don't we let our kids marry their kids and their kids can marry our kids and we'll just be one big happy family living here. We can all get along. Except what always happens when you disobey God happens. You find out that God was 100% right. And very, very quickly, out of those marriages, influenced by those spouses, these practices survive and come back. And pretty soon, Jews are making statues of Molech and Baal and bowing down to it. And the Jews even built, or they even started contacting dead spirits instead of praying to God. King Saul does it in the Bible. They even put rooms inside the temple where they keep male and female prostitutes. That's the temple of God this time. And they have a prostitute room, him and her, for him and her fertility gods where these same rituals are taking place. And in the end, even Jews were taking their children and putting them into the mouth of the statue of Molech and burning them to death. And that's why God lets Assyria and Babylon come and destroy Israel and take them away into the exile. That's why Ezra wasn't born in Israel. He was born in Persia. He's a fourth generation slave on the backside of the punishment that God gave for not following him and falling right back into those old practices. But God has let them come home. And he's let the temple be rebuilt. And here comes this second chance. And this is what Ezra prayed for. So he's so excited. He's teaching the law of Moses. And this time we're going to keep it. And then he finds out, well, no, actually, no. Uh, we're just going to start over again, marrying these people and, and, and taking up their practices. It says they have taken up the detestable practices of the Canaanites. And that's why Ezra's like, no, no. Are we going to do this again? Did we not learn anything from the Bible? Did we not learn anything from our own history? We just spent four generations in slavery over this and four months back and we're gonna start again? And he just sits in disbelief. Have you ever had your sit in disbelief in the dirt moment? When you look at your life and you're like, how did I get here? I knew this would happen. I've, I've heard this story before. I was taught not to do this. And here I am. I've done this before. I've been in the dirt before. I got out of the dirt. I got myself back in the dirt. Haven't I learned anything? Haven't I learned anything from my own past? Haven't I learned anything from my parents or from the scripture or, or anything? How did I get here? I, I'm not judging you. I, I've sat in the dirt plenty of times myself. You have to ask this question before I ended up sitting here in the dirt. Was I honoring Jesus with my whole life? And the answer is almost always no. 
I've gotten out of the dirt and gotten better and then fell right back in and right back into the dirt again. But I can tell you this, you can't just sit here in the dirt. It's not a good posture. You've got to get up. And that's what Ezra tries to do in Ezra chapter 9. Verse 5. At the time of the sacrifice, I stood up from where I had sat in mourning with my clothes torn. No. And then I fell to my knees and I lifted my hands to the Lord my God and I prayed, Oh my God, I am utterly ashamed. I blush to lift my face up to you for our sins are piled higher than our heads and our guilt has reached to the heavens. From the days of our ancestors until now, we have been steeped in sin. That is why we and our kings and our priests have been at the mercy of the pagan kings of the land. We have been killed, captured, robbed, and disgraced just as we are today. Ezra tries to stand up, but he just can't. Not with everything that's going on. So he falls to his knees and he gets ready to repent. So if you grew up in a fire and brimstone church setting, you're very uncomfortable right now. You know, oh, here we go. Fall on your knees and repent, right? Some of you feel an annoyance because you've seen a lot of fake repenting in your life and you don't want to watch any fake repenting today. And some of you feel an exhaustion because you have worn yourself out repenting. You have never, you, growing up, you never talked to Jesus unless you were apologizing to him. All you ever got to do, Sunday morning, Sunday night, Wednesday night, is repent, repent, repent. And you're just tired and you don't want to do any more repenting. And some of you are fearful because you lived so long in fear of the fires of hell and wondering, did I repent enough? Did I mean it enough? Did I catch every little sin? Did I fall on my knees? Should I have been all the way down on my knees? Or, or it, you've been saved and baptized and rebaptized and resaved at so many church camps and church services. You lost count a long, long time ago. So I, I understand that story because many of you have shared it with me. I don't relate to that story. I didn't go to the fire and brimstone church. I went to the opposite. I went to the wishy-washy church where we never talked about repent and where I didn't even really know there was such a thing as sin till I'd already about wrecked my life with it. But I can tell you this, Ezra is not looking to recreate my experience or your experience. Ezra is not trying to turn it into fire and brimstone Judaism or a wishy-washy Judaism. Ezra has the law of Moses. And he believes what is written into here is, is God's intention to forgive us and making a way for us to be restored. Ezra's like, I think he let us come home so we can start over again. He's not just God of a second chance. He's God of another chance. And so Ezra sees a great hope in this repentance. And that's why he's about to pour it all out in front of God. So we're going to read a good chunk here of Ezra 9 and, and listen as Ezra just lays it all out and pours it all out to God. This is what Ezra's repentance sounds like. But now we have been given a grief moment of grace for the Lord our God has allowed a few of us to survive as a remnant. He has given us security in this holy place. Our God has brightened our eyes and granted us some relief from our slavery for we were slaves but in his unfailing love, our God did not abandon us in our slavery. Instead, he caused the kings of Persia to treat us favorably. He revived us so we could rebuild the temple of our God and repair its ruins. He has given us a protective wall 
in Judah and Jerusalem. You know, he's saying he's not finished with us yet. Some of you are here this morning. God's not finished with you yet. And now, oh God, uh, what can we say after all of this? For once again, we abandoned your commands. Your servants and prophets warned us when they said, the land you are entering to possess is totally defiled by the detestable practices of the people living there. From one end of the other, the land is filled with corruption. Do not let your daughters marry their sons. Don't take their daughters as wives for your sons. Don't ever promote the peace and prosperity of those nations. If you follow these instructions, you will be strong and will enjoy good things the land produces. And you will leave this prosperity to your children forever. Now we are being punished because of our wickedness and our great guilt. But we have actually been punished far less than we deserve. For you, our God, have allowed some of us to survive as a remnant. But even so, we are again breaking your commands and intermarrying with the people who do these detestable things. Won't your anger be enough to destroy us so that even this little remnant no longer survives? O Lord God of Israel, you are just. We come before you in our guilt as nothing but an escaped remnant, though in such a condition, none of us can stand in your presence. But on this evening, they're going to make the sacrifices called for in the law of Moses. And he believes that built into that is God's desire that they will be forgiven and restored. He believes that's why he let us come home and gave us this second chance. That's why we're all here hearing this. Because he's not just God of a second chance. We already squandered that one. He's God of another chance. Just as the sacrifices of Moses are going to restore them, the sacrifice of Jesus restores us. Now, did I make a jump from the sacrifices Ezra's going to do to the sacrifice that Jesus made? Are those things really connected? They absolutely are connected. One is a road leading to the other. And I don't have to teach you about it. I'll just read it as it is written. So let's go 400 years into the future. Well, the Apostle Paul is answering the same question. What's the connection between that law of Moses and what Jesus has done? This is Galatians chapter 3. Why then was the law given? It was given alongside the promise to show people their sins. But the law was designed to last only until the coming of the child who was promised. God gave his law through angels to Moses, who was the mediator between God and the people. Now, a mediator is helpful if more than one party must reach an agreement. But God, who is one, did not use a mediator when he gave his promise to Abraham. That wasn't a deal God struck. That was just an offer God made. He didn't need to be talked into it with a mediator. There is a conflict. That, oh, is there a conflict then between God's law and God's promise? Absolutely not. If the law could give new life, we could be made right with God by obeying it. But the scriptures declare that we are all prisoners of sin. So we receive God's promise of freedom only by believing in Jesus Christ. Before the way of faith in Christ was available to us, we were placed under guard by the law. We were kept in protective custody, so to speak, until the way of faith was revealed. So if you're like, ah, I think that's a little bit confusing. Paul's like, yeah, I think I was confusing too. So verse 24, let me put it another way. The law was our guardian until Christ came. It protected us until we could be made right by God through faith. And now that the way of faith has come, we no longer need the law as our guardian. For you are all children of God through faith in Jesus Christ. 
Now, I know how mushy and convenient that all sounds. God wants to forgive you. He's already made a way. All you have to do is repent. You don't repent and hope for the best. You repent and it leads immediately to God's forgiveness. And well, yeah, but this is like my eighth time to do that. He's God of another chance. He's making a way. I know how horribly uh, easy that all sounds, but that's who our God is. Our God is really, really mushy. Our God has a real soft spot. You know, when, when, when Molech and Baal looked at God, they thought, that parent's way too easy on those kids. He should make them burn a baby to death or something. But our God's like, he, all my sisters in the room, you are all daddy's little princess. And all my brothers in the room, you are all God's boy, his pride and joy. And that's just how he is. And he makes this way. So let's take a look at an outline of Ezra's repentance. So this is an outline I made of, of what exactly Ezra did. At this time, would you take out your phone and snap a picture of this screen because you're going to need this later in the week. Take out your phone and snap a picture of this screen. Close up, cl- close up your clash of clans there and, um, and get out of the way. All right. Let me get far away here. So here's what Ezra did. Fall on your knees. Remember the good things God did for you. Remember the warnings he gave you. Admit the truth about yourself. You squandered and ignored the warnings. Express your desire to turn. That's what repent means, you know, to turn and go the other way. Recognize the grace already given to you. He's not finished with you yet. Now, these next three, Ezra didn't get to do, but he looked forward to them, and and you get to do them. Number seven, trust in the full grace given to you by Jesus. Be silent and feel his ministry of restoration and leave standing. That's what God wants to do. We fall to our knees to repent, and he says, all right, now take my hand and stand, and let's go. So it's usually at this point in the service that I would stop and we would all pray a prayer like this together. But I'm not going to do that today because I don't want to steal something from you. My best repenting, and I've done some good ones, (laughs) my best repentings have not happened in this room. Now there was one um, sitting right over there. I was hoping somebody would be sitting in the chair, but they're not. Uh, third row, fourth chair over. I can remember standing in that seat, my hands raised. We were singing, come thou fount of every blessing. Prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. And I can remember what I was repenting for. I can remember the message of hope God gave me standing right there. But that was just one time. I can remember being at a motel in Arlington, Texas and finding a railroad track behind the motel. And I walked an hour in one direction and an hour back and I confessed a lifetime of regrets. But I can tell you that on that track, the thing that God said to me that just restored my soul and made me go back to my motel room forgiven. I can remember laying on the floor of a retreat center in Stockton, Missouri with my face in the carpet crying the ugly cry (laughs) and uh, what I was pouring out to God. And I just remember the moment when he just took me by the hand and said, okay, now stand. And last uh, September on my birthday, I took this journal 
and I was in New Mexico and I hiked up a trail up to a ridge. I had to step around a rattlesnake that was blocking my way. There's symbology for you. And um, I got up there and somebody had stuck a cross up in the rocks up there all bleached out by the sun and I sat at the foot of that cross. And on this page right here, I wrote out 12 years worth of little sins that had led me farther from God than I knew I had gotten. And a couple of pages later, God gave me three things that if I would try to do them every day, I would never be able to get that far from him again. And I have wanted to preach to you these three things so many times since I've been back, including this morning. But every time I feel the Holy Spirit say, that's your three things. They're all going to get their own three things. So I'm sending you out. Pick a place. Pick a place and pick a posture. You know, your body was there for so many of your sins. Why not let your body be there for, the, for your forgiveness? Walk, sit, kneel, lay on your face, whatever works for you. Pick a posture and pick a place and mark your repentance because this was not fake. There was no one else around. There was no one to show off for. Uh, this was not exhausting. Those are five great stories, okay, but... I've had a lot of other interactions with God. Jesus and I do a lot of other business than just repenting all the time. And it was definitely not scary. In fact, it's the opposite of scary. Because when I wake up some mornings and that voice says to me, you can't be forgiven. You haven't even really changed. What makes you think God wants anything to do with you? Uh, there is no forgiveness for you. And I start to believe that I can wait. Wait a minute. I remember the words I was singing standing there and what God said to me. I remember the shade of those railroad tracks. I remember just what he said to me. I can feel the Berber carpet on my forehead as I cried the ugly cry, much uglier than this one. And, um, <laughs> and now he got me up off the floor and I'm, I'll never forget the sound of that river rushing through the desert at the bottom of that ridge while I laid out. 12 years worth of wandering from God. And I know he forgave me because the day is marked and it cannot be forgotten. So that's why I don't want to steal it from you. Pick your place, pick your posture, pour it all out to God and you will be forgiven. It's already done. What did Jesus say from the cross? Uh, it is finished. It is finished. And he is risen. He is risen Amen.